don't know if Teresa said this already, but I think that's probably the most powerful song I've ever heard about caring for someone who cannot seem to care for themselves. And that's what I want to talk about today. First, I want to tell you a story. It's about Buddha and the bandit. Not BJ and the bear, Buddha and the bandit. Angulimo was his name. And he got his name specifically because of a horrendous practice in which he engaged. He was a bandit, a brigand, a murderer. And it was his practice to keep trophies of those that he killed. He kept a garland, a necklace around his neck with the fingers of all those that he had killed. He said, I will stop when I get to 1,000. And the 1,000th person he was going to rob and kill was the Buddha himself. And so he said upon the Buddha one day in the forest, and the Buddha did not respond with anger. He responded with equanimity. He said, well, before you kill me, I have one request, one last desire. And it almost seems to be the universal practice. Angulima said, I will grant, I will grant your dying wish. Buddha said, I want you to go over there to that beautiful tree, that beautiful tree with the flowers growing off of it. And what I want you to do is with your sword, cut off a branch of that tree with the most resplendent flowers on them. And I want you to bring that to me. And the bandit thought, well, this is an odd request, but I will honor it. And he went over and he cut down that branch with those beautiful flowers on it. And as he was about to return it to Buddha, Buddha said, well, that is only half of my desire. Only half of my desire. What I'd like you to do now is return that branch to the tree. And the bandit Angulima said, I knew you were crazy. This is insanity. How can I return the branch to the tree from which it has been cut? And the Buddha said, no, sir, I am not crazy. I am not insane. You are the one who is insane because you think that what is powerful is what can destroy and who you can hurt. Creating and restoring. That is real strength. And that is the only true power that there is. This morning, I want to talk about strength. Real strength, authentic power, the kind of power that restores and heals. And it is very different from the way that in everyday language we can think about what real power is, what we think it is. The every conception of power is our ability to move things, shape things, shape things to our will. You say, well, that person got me tickets to a World Series game. They have power. They got me into that restaurant that has the five-month waiting list, but they're going to get me in next week. That person has real power and authority. But the different kind of power I want to talk about this morning, it is not the kind of power that moves things around, but it is the kind of power that Buddha was talking about. It is the kind of power that can be still, that is grounded and centered and knows the difference between the power that yells because it is truly powerless and the power that heals and restores. It is this kind of soulful power that allows us to truly be with someone we love who is in pain. 
And it's not the kind of thorn in the paw pain that if you just get your tweezers out, you can remove it. We're not talking about a technical kind of power in which you can just do the one right thing and then the pain and the sorrow and the suffering will be gone. Nope. We are talking today about the kind of pain that a loved one experiences that you cannot do anything at all to stop. These moments happen in the recovery room. They happen in the doctor's office. And they happen by the deathbed. It is the kind of pain, the kind of suffering that plays out beyond our control and also even worse for us goes beyond our ability to explain in any way that will have it make sense. The extent to which we engage the kind of power that wants to move things around so that we can prove to ourselves that truly we have power, the kind that shakes and shapes, we will be frustrating ourselves and we'll also be doing something else. We will probably also be distancing ourselves from the person who is in pain and needs our love the most. This is no easy task. Of course not. We know it this way of loving, living with this kind of authentic power. One of the reasons it can be so difficult to be with someone we love who is in pain and we cannot stop their pain from happening is it because it reminds us of our own very deep vulnerability and what it means to give our hearts away in this life. We wish that the objects of our love could just be a little bit stronger, that they weren't and we weren't quite so frail at times. And love itself was not so vulnerable. There's a scene in the movie Boiler Room that I want to go into too much about it. But there's a scene in which the main character is relating to his girlfriend the most emblematic story about his relationship with his own dad. It was his 10th birthday. And he was given a new bike. And he was riding the bike down a very, very steep hill. And he lost control. And he slammed the bike into a car that was parked along the side of the road. And he was jarred, he was hysterical, he had also broken his leg. And looking down and seeing the damage he had done to himself, he really started to sob. He started to get hysterical, he started to cry. And his father, seeing what had happened to his son, seeing what had happened to his son, in a misbegotten attempt to love the boy as best he could and to stop his suffering, he slapped him open-handed across the face. That was not about the son's pain. It was about the father's inability to deal with seeing face to face the sorrow and the suffering and the pain that he couldn't do anything to do with right away. It's about that anxiety and that fear that maybe our love for each other is not enough. Think about those moments in your lives, and we all have them, and we all will have them. We are face-to-face, literally in that biblical metaphor, face-to-face with someone we love who is in true pain. I'm not sure there is a scarier place for any of us to be in this life. At that point, what we are called to do is not array our power and demonstrate it. But we are called to simply be this, be a witness. Stay with, do not look away, stay with, maintain the focus. We are called to have courage. Now, courage, very often the way we use it, we think it's like bravery. 
We think it's like the first into the battle is the most courageous, bravest person. And that's somewhat right, but it's not all the way right. You could even say that in some ways, Angulima, the bandit, he was always the first into the battle, but he did not have courage. The word courage, it comes from the Latin word core, heart. To have true courage is to take or to be given heart. To encourage someone is to give away your hearts. And also when you are encouraged by another is to take their heart. That's why the song we just heard is so powerful. Lord, I'm discouraged. My heart has been taken away. My heart has been broken. It is the song of a fully broken heart, not a half-heartedly broken heart, but a full broken heart. Because the narrator sings for someone he loves who is in pain, and he cannot do anything to stop it. His love is not that kind of power, and in fact, love is not the kind of power to get us anything that we want. Love is the kind of power that can accept and care for accept and care for what we have been given. Wanting what we have, as some people wiser than myself have put it. And so at the end of the song, he tries to let go. He prays for her. He doesn't expect any desire to be returned. He doesn't expect that he will get anything back. He makes what could be called a sacrifice. I've been thinking a lot about the meaning of sacrifice this week. It's not a word we hear so often in progressive religion because it can have some really negative connotations from some of the traditions that I know some of you grew up in. Sacrifice is kind of like another person handing you a knife, asking you to take out your own liver so they can use it for themselves. You do all the sacrificing, someone else does all the benefiting. But there's a deeper meaning to sacrifice. And I thought of it particularly this past week when the Christian season of Lent began. It marks Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. And it leads on the Christian calendar from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. Lent, this time of the year, is my spiritual practice. Now that might sound odd for a Unitarian Universalist minister who was born a Brooklyn Jew. But it's not. Because Lent, in its truest meaning, in its universal meaning, taking away the Christian story, it is about restoration, not about punishment. It is not about damning ourselves because we have done something wrong. It is about undamming the deeper currents of our hearts so that our hearts can go to the places that they are called. Lent is about restoring the rightful place and the rightful shape of what many psychologists and theologians have called the God-shaped holes within us. Purposes of today, I think that God-shaped stuff is very much like how the Buddha identified it. It's that power that creates and sustains and nurtures and grows life. And it is the God-shaped urgings that allows us in the face of insane power that wants to manipulate, that wants to move, that wants to push, that wants us to do the bidding of our own sometimes insane wills or the will of another insane person. Well, true power offers us clarity and groundedness so that we can respond to life in love. This Lent, I've chosen for myself a very, very small 
But I can tell you already, it has made a huge difference in five days. A very small spiritual practice. For me, for the next now 35 days, no more sugared sweets. No more sugared sweets. That will not change the world, folks. As we all know. But really, it is about this. First of all, it's knowing my own defaults and it's knowing my own brain chemistry. The part of me that used to love and frankly still does love, if I'm not vigilant about maintaining who I am now. The part of me, the part of my brain that used to get fed by some substances that were not very good. Well, that part of my brain loves sugar. Because it's a high. It's very much a high. So really what my spiritual practice is about, it's not about the cake, it's not about the candy, it's not about, praise God, everlasting gobstoppers, my favorite. (laughs) It is about reorienting my hunger. It is about reorienting my hunger from junk food to soul food. I would ask you what your junk food is, even if it's not junk food, and ask you the ways in which the junk food or the junk practices that you have get in the way of your connection with real, authentic soul food. Because so much of the suffering in life, it comes from a poorly fed craving, a craving for a deeper wholeness that we fill and we feed in ways that are not truly substantial. It's when we are lonely really lonely, and we wonder about our connections, and we don't take the time to really understand why perhaps we are lonely. But instead, we just start making noise in a lot of different ways, saying to life or to other people, hey, look at me, I'm over here. Look at me. That is not a way to answer our need not to be lonely. Or we are sad, and so we force a fake laugh, and wear a fake smile, and show the world a fake mask. Or we're feeling, as perhaps some of us are right now, poor in spirit, or poor in pocketbook, and so we buy something to make us feel rich in both. It will not fill up the spirits, and of course we know it will only hurt the pocketbook that much more. The discipline in this life is to learn not to take half-hearted measures to fill a fully needed heart. Not to take half-hearted measures, but to find those things that truly sustain and lift us up. When we can do this, when we can engage in this spirit, this practice, we can truly respond to the pain of those we love because we are responding most authentically to our own needs and our own hungers. And we can do it especially with the pain of those who we love, whose pain, whether they mean it or not, whether they mean it or not, I don't want to be judgmental here, whether they mean it or not, it is caused by their own actions. That's the truest test of our love, and it is the most difficult test of our love for the people that we care about. Now, I'll tell you a little bit of a funny story about this as a way into some deeper stuff. It's about my sister and her husband and their first child, my niece named Margot, who is one of my favorite five people walking this earth right now. Margot is about three and a half. And about a year and a half ago, she entered the 
terrible twos. And it wasn't so much about food. It wasn't so much about clothing. It was about bedtime. Every night, a year and a half ago in that summer, it was a knock-down, drag-out to get Margot to go to bed. And you recognize how smart two-year-olds are? Best manipulators, best negotiators in the world. Every night, can I have a drink of water? I need to go to the potty. She was an early toilet train kind of kid. I need this, I need that, I need this, I need that. Well, eventually when she ran out of excuses, then the crying would start. You left me, you left the light on, you left the light off, you opened the door too much, not enough. I mean, (laughs) on a yo-yo they were, up and down, up and down, bending to Margot's will. Until one night, I think they probably watched The Nanny the night before. (laughs) We're going to draw... Our line in the sand, Emily and David, my sister and brother-in-law, they said, and the tantrum started up, but they would not feed it. They held firm. Every time she walked out of the room, they would, without saying anything, just lift her up and put her back into bed. Probably 10 times that night, the same thing, the same thing, the same thing. And when she wasn't getting what she wanted... Ah, I mean, that's like the biggest screeching tantrum stuff you could imagine. But they held firm and eventually got quiet in Margot's room. And as Emily and David were tiptoeing past to go to their own bedroom later that night, later that night, I want to show you what happened first. Let's see the slides. That is an ugly doll. The ugly doll that Margot has is the green one on your right. Ugly dolls are really wonderful, even though when you first look at them, they're pretty ugly. The green one is named, next slide, Wilson. (laughs) The castaway volleyball companion from the movie the same name to Tom Hanks. And so as Emily and David were tiptoeing past Margot's room, and it seemed to have quieted, they heard Margot say, Okay, Wilson, nobody's coming. (laughs) I guess we'll have to go to bed. (laughs) Now, that's a two-year-old in a tantrum, but it also is illustrative. By being fully yourself and motivated not out of hatred and not even out of frustration, although they were frustrated, but motivated out of love and being what they call in the psychological language, self-differentiated, you can help another person come to be who they need to be. Now, the circumstances in many of our lives when we are loving and dealing with and working with people who we care about, who are causing themselves pain through their own actions, it is much worse and it is much painful, it is much stressful than just dealing with a child who's entered the terrible twos. That person may not seem capable or equipped to help themselves. Maybe they have lost control of what real power is, and so they just go blasting their power all around, kind of like the bandit in the Buddha story. They're acting like they have real power, but they have absolutely none. 
Now before and in front of and face to face with someone else's determined will to hurt themselves, there is not much that we can really do. Maybe, maybe we can recognize our own unwitting role in that dynamic. Rabbi Edwin Freeman, who is the founder, well, not quite the founder, but really the greatest scholar of what's called systems theory. Systems theory basically wants to take a look at our actions in context and said at the basis of everything, there is relationship, not isolated individuals in own separate silos, but everything exists in relationship. Edwin Freeman, the rabbi, tells a story about a wife of a chronic alcoholic. I mean, literally every horrible thing a chronic alcoholic can do was done to this family. And she took care of him night after night after night. She woke him up and cleaned him off to make sure that he would get to work so he wouldn't lose a job. She would call in and make excuses for him. The bargaining, the begging, all of it she had done, and none of it had worked. Still, he continued to drink. And so finally, one day, she gave up. She made a sacrifice. And she said very calmly, without anger, one morning when he was hungover, If you're going to drink yourself to death, would you please do me this favor? Would you start paying a higher premium on your life insurance? So when you leave us, at least you will leave us rich. That woke the guy up. Because she understood, in the words of one of my favorite songwriters, Josh Ritter, that every heart is a package tied up in knots someone else tied. Every heart is a package tied up and not someone else tied. And what she did, the only thing that she could do is start to disentangle the knots inside of her own heart, hoping that it might somehow make a change in the life of the person she loved. We start to do this, we may reframe another person's life. It's kind of like the TV show Intervention. Have any of you ever seen it? Let's see, show of hands. It's, well, I encourage you. It's on A&E promise you they're not playing me for the for this plug it's really good stuff and it covers the lives of people who are very very seriously addicted in a whole range of ways and the show ends toward the end with the offer of help offer of help but in a certain way the stories that the families the friends tell is that i want to do this for your own good but things cannot continue in the way they have been to this point And the only quibble I ever have with the way the show goes is that sometimes the loved ones will say, I love you, but things cannot go on this way anymore. I love you, but you can't live here anymore. I love you, but I'm not going to give you money anymore. I think that's the wrong thing because rather it's I love you and this is why we cannot continue this dance. I love you because... Because you mean so much to me, we will not walk forward any way in this way. This is letting go, not in spite of love, but because of love. Now, if you're going to practice this kind of tough love, maybe some of you have already had to do this in your life. I've had from time to time. It's really clear to be certain of your motivations. Remember what Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. Judging is something we do all the time. It is an absolutely ubiquitous part of our lives. And it's so dangerous because we do it so often. 
See, if you're hurt at the moment that you are trying to let a person go in love, all they will see and all they will react to is your anger and your disappointment. You need to allow them to see your love. It's important to remember that as we judge, so will we too be judged. Because the worst trip that any of us can ever take is the stumble into self-righteousness. It's the worst trip, the worst fall that any of us can ever have. So if you feel you have to pull out the rug from someone, first make sure that you are on the most solid spiritual ground that you can know and you can maintain. Admit how angry you are, yes, to yourself, and ask what lies below that. Underneath the anger, you'll probably find something else, some fear, some fear of rejection, some fear that the relationship will end. And then ask yourself, what lies below that? The first, rather the most well-known first Buddhist teacher in the West was a man named Chogyam Trungpa. And his guidance to us is very wise. He says, if you will go beyond fear, it begins when we first examine our fear, our anxiety, our nervousness, our concern, our restlessness. If we look into our fear and we see beneath its veneer, the first thing we find is what's really there. Sadness beneath the nervousness. See, nervousness is cranking up all the time, wanting to move, vibrating, always wanting to move. It's that wrong kind of power. But when we slow down, when we relax with our fear, we find sadness, not laughter. We find sadness, which if we pay attention to it, we will know it to be calm and gentle. And we will allow the one true thing to happen, which is that sadness will hit you in your heart and you will know it. Wise hearts are strong hearts because they know the reality of being sad and being angry and being fearful and knowing where all that stuff comes from. Being able to face it and not running away. Wise hearts, the kind of hearts all of us are called to have. Wise hearts are hungry for something other than just approval. And wise hearts are able to withstand the trial of separation. That is a kind of sacrifice for the hope of a greater restoration. Because in the end, love does not mean security. Wise hearts know that they are vulnerable. And we know that opening our hearts guarantees that one way or another, our hearts will be bruised and our hearts will be broken. And that very vulnerability is the seat of the greatest wisdom and the greatest insight any of us will ever have. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit of this life, divine animator of this creation,
Let us know our God-shaped holes, the places in ourselves that reach out and yearn and burn for wholeness, which in so many traditions comes through so many names. But that wholeness is the promise for us in this life. Let us know that when our power comes from this wholeness, it is a holiness. It is an ability to be steadfast, to withstand, to seek and to listen and to hear underneath the loud cry, sometime the anguished cry, that deep, very human need to be loved. May we answer that call with our hearts, with our wise, strong, strong-beating hearts. Amen.